This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger job, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. The case we're going to look into today has a very personal connection for me because key events of it happened in the neighborhood where I grew up. I'm talking about the Torso Killer of Cleveland. This is an episode we did back in 2014 with James Jessen Badal, who is a local author in Cleveland, but probably knows more about the Torso murder case than anybody. Honestly, it's a fascinating case. It involves Elliot Ness. Yes, that Elliot Ness who brought down Al Capone and who was the head of the Untouchables. And a whole litany of strangeness. One of the most fascinating cases in America's history and what many people refer to as America's Jack the Ripper. Enjoy this classic episode of The Crime Scene. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the crime scene. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you today. Now, uh, today we're going to indulge in something that I've always been interested in. I think you'll find it fascinating as well. And since we have people all over the world listening, you may not be familiar with this case. One that involves a very well-known figure, Elliot Ness. And we're talking about the torso murders that terrorized Cleveland many, many years ago, the city of Cleveland. We have a great expert on that today, James Jessen Bedell, Dr. James Jessen Bedell. He is an assistant professor of English and journalism at the Eastern Campus of Cuyahoga Community College in Cleveland. He has served on the board of trustees of the Cleveland Police Historical Society since 2001. His previous books for Kent State University Press include The Twilight of Innocence, The Disappearance of Beverly Potts, Though Murder Has No Tongue, The Lost Victim of Cleveland's Mad Butcher, and Hell's Wasteland, The Pennsylvania Torso Murders. He is also working on a book devoted to the unsolved 1964 murder of 16-year-old Beverly Jaros in Cleveland Heights, a suburb just outside, excuse me, Garfield Heights, just outside of Cleveland. We're so glad to have him on the program. Dr. Bedell, welcome to the crime scene. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, I know you have your new expanded and revised authoritative edition of your book, In the Wake of the Butcher, the Cleveland Tourism. Yes, it is. It is. Now, what got you originally interested in this case? Well, my interest actually goes back to when I was in eighth grade, uh, when I took American history. Our teacher apparently decided that the torso murders were something that we should know something about. And so the last two days of the semester, he read to us an article which had appeared in the the November 1949 issue of Harper's Magazine. And of course, we were all just fascinated. I've often said to some of my teacher colleagues that if you want to get the attention of a bunch of 15-year-olds, read them something about people losing their heads. (laughs) And I never, ever forgot it. Uh, It made an incredible impression on me. 
And then in the, I think it was sometime in the mid-1990s, I thought, well, let's see if we can pull this together into some sort of book. I did I did discover that there was an awful lot of misinformation out there about the crimes. And I think this is typical of any notorious crime that has not been extremely well documented officially. Now, let's take a step back because uh, you and I are, I mean, you more than me, but I'm very familiar with the case, being a Cleveland native, also having been interested in it. For years, I remember I'm in my mid-40s reading a book about it 20, 25 years ago. So uh, I'm familiar with it. You're obviously very well steeped in it, but we have people listening from all over. So tell us a little bit about the, the Cleveland Torso murders. What were they? When did they happen? And what was Cleveland like at the time? Well, at the time, Cleveland had a reputation as being the most dangerous city in the country. I think a lot of that had to do with automobile accidents and this sort of thing. Uh, traffic was a real prob- problem. Uh, Cleveland, like every other major industrial city in the country, had been hit very, very hard during the Depression. We're talking now about the mid-1930s. And in the area called Kingsbury Run, and Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric riverbed, Uh, attached to the downtown that sort of swings in a southeast arc out to about East 79th or so, uh, were filled with uh, hobo jungles of various sizes and various permanences. I think at one time there were a total of six different shanty towns in this particular area. So Cleveland was suffering. The murders, we think, began sometime in late 1934. In September of 1934, a man by the name of Frank Lagasse, who was walking along the shores of Lake Erie, looking for driftwood that he could burn, ran across something which he initially described as looking like a tree trunk with the bark stripped off of it. When he got close to it, he realized it was the lower half of a woman's torso, thighs still attached, but amputated at the knees. Uh, officially, the murder started in September of 23rd, 1935. And on that particular day, and if I remember correctly, it was a Monday, there were two neighborhood boys playing at the top of an elevation known as Jackass Hill. And they were apparently tossing a softball back and forth. And when the ball rolled down over the hill, and we're talking about an elevation, which in those days was about 60 feet, the older boy challenged the younger one to a race to the bottom of the hill to get the ball. Well, the older boy got there first. He stopped, he looked around, and he absolutely froze. And he ran back up the hill and told his friend that he had seen a dead man in the bushes with no head. Now, when the police arrived, they found the body of a naked white man, decapitated and emasculated, and completely drained of blood. So whoever had done this had clearly done it somewhere else and simply brought the body here. As they explored the area, they found the body of a second man, also emasculated and decapitated. But that would have been there for quite some time, perhaps as long as three weeks to a month. Uh, 
They found the heads of both men buried in the dirt with just enough hair of one of them sticking above the surface to make sure the police would find it. And that was the official beginning of it, and they ran until quite literally the end of 1938, totaling 12 to 13 victims, depending upon how you count them. Now, uh, what were the, the, the distinct marks of the killer in terms of the, the way these people were murdered, dismembered? What were some of the telltale signs that it was, in fact, a torso murder? Well, the one thing he always did was he decapitated them. Sometimes he didn't do more than that, but that he always did. In some cases, he also took off the legs, took off the arms. Excuse me. In a couple of cases, he bisected the torso as well. Uh, Since most of the bodies were not found soon enough to be absolutely sure what the cause of death was, that's a little bit iffy. But the bodies that they did find quickly, uh, they determined frighteningly enough that the cause of death actually had been decapitation. Uh, yeah, that that had to be a, just a, just a horrible, horrible, terrifying way to to to, to die. Now, what was well, the, go, go ahead, go ahead. We're not sure that they were conscious when that happened. Ah. Now, uh, what was the reaction of the Cleveland police? Was it kind of like, oh, well, another hobo is dead? Or did they take it serious from the outside? Well, the very first identified victim was not a hobo. He was something of a local lowlife, but at least they knew who he was. Uh, He was identified through his fingerprints because he had a police record. And they were able to find, well, they found his body quickly enough to get a decent set of prints. Since most of the victims did go unidentified, and we're talking now both men and women, the assumption was that the murderer was preying on the dispossessed of the Great Depression and that he was trolling for victims in the shanty towns of Kingsbury Run. Uh, the murders so terrified the city, uh, the police expended a huge amount of energy on this. This turned out to be the largest, most massive police investigation in Cleveland history. Uh, the numbers of people that they talked to, uh, I think rose as high as 1500 at some point. So they were not, they were not casual about it. They weren't thinking, oh, here we go again, another bum's been killed. Uh, they took it very seriously. Now, uh, I'd be curious how it was treated in the Cleveland media, specifically the newspapers. I think about Cleveland and the days that Louis B. Seltzer, who was the uh, legendary editor of the Cleveland Press, um, how did the newspapers treat this? Well, there were three newspapers in Cleveland in those days. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was a morning paper, and is the only one still existing. And the Cleveland Press and the Cleveland News were both afternoon papers. Now, needless to say, this was pretty sensationalistic stuff. And so they were outdoing each other, uh, trying to sell papers. I had a gentleman tell me that uh, the local drugstore that was near his house Whenever there was a murder, you could almost watch the papers just go down within a matter of a few minutes. 
Wow, that's that, that that's pretty pretty wild stuff. And people have to remember. I think sometimes we lose track as we're in front of our computers and know about instantaneous news from multiple sources. That uh, newspapers were pretty much. I mean, of course, there was radio, but really, in terms radio, of hard but, news, it, it was newspapers. But newspapers were it, yeah. Now, um, no discussion of this topic would be uh, nearly complete without talking a little bit about Elliot Ness. I think most people out there associate Elliot Ness with uh, Chicago and Al Capone and and the Untouchables and Robert Robert Stack and all of that. But um, he was a big figure in Cleveland. Talk to us about Elliot Ness and the Torso Murders. A lot of people don't know that Elliot Ness spent a lot of years in Cleveland. Uh, when he left Chicago, uh, he be he was sent to the hills of Kentucky to bust moonshiners, and he found himself facing even greater dangers from moonshiners than he did from the mob in Chicago, and he wasn't getting anywhere near as much publicity. So in December of 1935, Harold Burton, who was then the mayor of Cleveland, offered him the job of safety director. Now, the position of safety director is not exactly unique to Cleveland, but there are not too many other cities that have the very same arrangement. As safety director, you are theoretically in charge of everything that has to do with public safety, which in this case would mean both the police department and the fire department. Uh, He did not become intimately involved with the torso murders until the summer of 1936. And that's when things, I think, really came to a head. Uh, Cleveland was looking forward to being able to climb out of the financial doldrums that summer. The Republican National Convention was going to be here. There was to be a Great Lakes Exposition. It was going to open up on the Erie Shore. Excuse me. And the American Legion was meeting here at the end of the year, or the end of summer, I should say. So the last thing city fathers wanted was negative publicity about Cleveland. Well, there was three murders during that summer. And in September, um, Mayor Burton approached Elliot Ness and said, look, you've got to become more deeply involved in this. And at that point, uh, well, he became more deeply involved and not exactly, I don't think he, I don't think he actually spearheaded the investigation, but I think he was much more aware at that point of what was going on than he had been when this was primarily, primarily a matter of the Cleveland police. Was it a turning point for him? Because my understanding is after the Torso murders, uh, he ran for mayor of Cleveland. There's a, uh, I think it may be torn down now, but there used to be an old building in the central area. And I remember seeing it as a kid with a very faint painted billboard, Elliot Ness for mayor. Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) But was this a turning point? Because from then on, he didn't have that record of achievement that he had in Chicago. Well, his record of achievement was actually better in Cleveland than it was in Chicago. The problem was we didn't have a named criminal like Al Capone to attach all this to. Uh, He uh, really cleaned up the police department. Uh, He did a lot for public safety. Uh, He instituted a lot of procedures for the training of police. And after he'd been here a couple of years, Cleveland actually got an award for safety. 
Well, so I stand. Was, I stand corrected. I apologize for my incorrect assumption. Well, everybody has that assumption. <laughs> uh, I suppose. I suppose we should say Cleveland don't get no respect. But uh, yeah, he what he did here was really remarkable. He left Cleveland in 1942 with a change in administration. Uh, whenever there's a new mayor, a change in city administration, all the department heads automatically submit their resignations. Sometimes they're accepted, sometimes they're not. His was accepted, and so he went off to, I think, the area of Washington, D.C., where the government had him trying to bust brothels that were growing up around military establishments. But he was talked into running for mayor of Cleveland back in 1947, and so he returned for that. Uh, I don't think it was a particularly good idea. Elliot Ness was not a political animal at all. He was nominally a Republican, but that, but in name only. And I have no idea exactly what kind of campaign he mounted, but... Uh, he was no competition for the Democratic uh, contender. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. In terms of who the killer could have been, I mean, I've heard things that there was somebody high in society. It might have been a physician. Um, I don't want you to disclose any secrets, uh, that would stop anybody from buying your book. But what, first of all, what was the speculation on the street? Uh, who were some of the suspects and, and in what general direction do you lean? Well, the summer of 1936, when the first six of the officially recognized 12 victims had been found, the then coroner, a man by the name of A.J. Pierce, uh, called what he called a, I shouldn't say he called it, but the newspapers called it a torso clinic. And he invited all the police who had worked on the case. He, of course, invited Elliot Ness. He also invited the anatomists who taught at the Western Reserve Medical School and the heads of the various psychiatric institutions in the area. And they had what I suppose we would call a skull session about what are we looking for. And I think this is really, truly remarkable because this is one of the first examples I know of of what today we would just simply call modern FBI profiling. But these guys were walking that trail for the first time. And they decided that whoever it was, he was familiar with the run. He was familiar with the CD areas downtown. He obviously had anatomical knowledge because he could dismember the bodies and decapitate cleanly with very few hesitation marks. And he obviously knew where to cut uh, to avoid the bone, the avoid the bones. Uh, they speculated that he could be a butcher. Uh, some speculated that he could be a hunter. I think there was a certain amount of social prejudice 
in that the physicians who were in attendance were rather reluctant to say it could be one of their own. Uh, but it was certainly possible that the murderer was a physician, specifically a surgeon. Uh, kind of a parallel to the Ripper case is that there had been some speculation. I think that, I believe this is the case, it might have been somebody in the upper echelons of society. Wasn't there some speculation and it was being covered up? Uh, again, that's one of these rumors that gets going uh, in the face of no documentation or very little. Elliot Ness, 20 years after the murders took place, said that he had had a secret suspect. And he gave this secret suspect the rather unusual pseudonym of Gaylord Sundheim, S-U-N-D-H-E-I-M. Now, he says that he or some of his operatives had grown very suspicious of a man who indeed was a physician uh, who had problems with alcohol and also drug abuse. And that at some point, they corralled him off the street, took him to the Cleveland Hotel, which is now the Renaissance on Public Square. And apparently, Ness had a room set aside for this sort of thing. Uh, they took this secret suspect to a hotel room and kept him there some either about a week to 10 days to two weeks. Uh, one of the witnesses who was there said it took him three days to dry him out. He was so drunk. Uh, Ness also said that he administered a lie detector test, which the individual failed, but that he had absolutely no evidence against this man so that he had to let him go. And shortly thereafter, the man supposedly committed himself to a mental institution, which I guess would put him beyond the reach of the law, at least easily. And he proceeded to bombard Ness for years with jeering letters and postcards, sort of a catch-me-if-you-can kind of thing. Uh, there were a lot of people who simply didn't believe Ness. They thought this was... This was only one of the most famous lawmen in the United States who couldn't bring himself to admit that there was a case he couldn't crack. And so he had manufactured this rather interesting story as a way of saying, well, he really did solve it. When the first edition of Butcher appeared in 2001, well, there were three questions I thought at that point that had to be answered. First of all, did that interrogation take place? Could that be verified? Second of all, could the person so questioned be identified? And then, of course, the most important question, was that individual the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run? I was able to establish that, yes, the interrogation did take place. It took place in May of 1938. One of the principal problems, as far as some of the critics were concerned, was where did the lie detector come from? Uh, the only lie detector in the area at the time was in East Cleveland. And there was no record that East Cleveland had ever loaned their machine out to Cleveland authorities. Mm -hmm. In fact, if Cleveland wanted to administer a lie detector test on someone, they had to take them out to uh, uh, East Cleveland. Well, it turns out that Elliot Ness called in a marker from his Chicago days, 
And Leonard Keeler, the man who invented the modern-day polygraph, brought his machine to Cleveland in secret and administered the test. (laughs) And according to one of the witnesses who was present when the test was over, Keeler turned to Ness and said, that's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything else. Now, in 2001, I was also able to establish who that individual was. The big question which necessitated what we call the authoritative, expanded, revised edition was that person, the Mad Butcher. And I'm come far, far closer to answering that question in the new edition than I did in the first. Oh, I'm, I'm going to read that book. There's no question about it. Now, um, one thing that always interested me was this idea that this torso murderer may have also committed murders in other parts of the country. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, no. Uh, There were some murders that in some ways were similar that were happening in Pennsylvania, uh, primarily around Newcastle, which is a small industrial town. Excuse me, the frogs are out today. (laughs) A small industrial town about uh, 80 miles southeast of Cleveland, and there was a very notorious swampy area, which locals dubbed the murder swamp. And apparently mobsters from Youngstown were using uh, this swamp as a dumping ground uh, for some of their victims. Uh, The crimes looked similar because the victims had been decapitated. But uh, it's my opinion at any rate, after having looked into those murders as closely as I could, that no, they're not related. Uh, There was some suggestion quite a number of years ago that the Kingsbury run butcher also killed Elizabeth short, the black Dahlia Mm -hmm. out in California in 1946. Uh, that was raised. I think that possibility was raised on an episode of unsolved mysteries, which was, uh, ironically hosted by Robert, ironically hosted by (laughs) Robert stack. Yes. Uh, sometime in the 1990s, the uh, police chief out in Los Angeles actually contacted the police here in Cleveland and said, can you look into this? And a detective or a homicide detective was assigned to look into it. And he determined very quickly that she was not killed by the same person. The MOs were entirely different. Where do you think this, uh, I mean, it's kind of morbid to rank mysteries, but when you think of the, uh, the, you know, American murder cases, uh, historic uh, serial killers and those things, um, where do you think this ranks um, up against uh, the the other notorious ones out there that may be better known? Well, I think today we tend to rank serial killers by body count. And with only a dozen, perhaps 13, the Kingsbury Run butcher's total is not all that high. But then again, Jack the Ripper was only responsible for the death of five people. I think one of the reasons the Kingsbury Run murderer is as well known as he is, 
The torso murders, like the Jack the Ripper murders, have two things about them, which I think guarantee fame. Number one, the incredible viciousness of the crimes, and number two, the fact that they've never been officially solved. So ranking the Kingsbury Run murder, I think, would be difficult in that sense. Um, do you feel that you've gone as far as you can go with this research? Do you think that there will one day be a final solution or is it something that is, um, lost to the fog of time? Well, uh, I leave that for people to read my book and determine, um, do we have the final solution? I'm inclined to think that we do. Well, folks, I got to tell you, as we were talking, I just hit buy over at Amazon.com for the Kindle edition. So I can't wait to find out what the solution is. So you, so you, so you sold one book today, Dr. Vidal. We really appreciate it. And a great, great, um, great discussion and great knowledge of this. First of all, I want to see if you have any final thoughts about the torso murder. And, and then please tell us where we can find the book. Oh, uh, I'm not sure the new book is even in the stores yet. As you point out, it is available on Amazon. But the last time I checked, they only had one copy left, so maybe you got that last copy. (laughs) But uh, they'll be getting more. I think Amazon's probably the best bet. There's a wonderful little bookstore in Tremont called Visible Voices, uh, which... uh, carries my books on and off and they they can get anything very quickly. Right. Great. Well, Dr. Bedell, thank you so much. The book is in the wake of the butcher Cleveland torso murders, authoritative edition revised and expanded. I can't wait to start reading it. Thank you again well, for joining us today. I hope you enjoy probably the wrong word to use under these circumstances. (laughs) I guess so. Well, um, we thank you nevertheless, and we thank you for tuning in to this edition of the crime scene, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. 